Thank you so much. Um, I think we worked out last night um, that it's been 18 years um, that we've journeyed together. We studied at the same college and our children are the same age. And so um, Nick and Chloe and me and my husband, we got to do parenting alongside each other in the early years. And uh, there's a lot of ugly stuff that comes out of you in those early years of parenting, isn't there? Like it doesn't always bring out the best of you when you're tired and you're stretched. Um, but even at our kind of most exhausted, um, I could still see in these two just absolute gold. And that friendship has carried on going and going and now our kids are young adults and teenagers and still love to hang out together and um, it's just such an incredible friendship to be part of and um, so thank you so much for inviting me back again and um, we loved being here in August it was fantastic I am going to share some of my story again today so some of you will have heard part of that last time but I'm going to weave into um, the this biblical story that we're looking at today which as you've heard is the story of Naomi and Ruth um, it's interesting where we've just met them in the story right now because one was a mother but has lost her children and the other one is not a mother. So how does that weave into Mother's Day? Well, let's unpack the story a little bit. And I want to make a confession to you about um, this particular story in the Bible and that is I have not always had the best attitude towards the book of Ruth. So when I was a teenager, I, I grew up in a church like this. It was a family church. People were excited about God. There was really good teaching. So from a very young age, I said, yes, that's what I want. I want to walk in faith with God, and I want to be part of a church, and I want to um, follow the example that's been set for me by the different people in church, which has been a real blessing and made a massive difference to my life. Um, so what I remember from my teenagers is that we would have a couple of times where um, either at my the church I grew up in or would be away at a camp or a conference and they'd say right all the teenage guys are going to go in this part of the building and all the teenage girls are going to go in this part of the building and you're going to have different teaching and you always think oh what's that going to be you know what are we going to say that the guys can't hear and what are the guys going to say that we can't hear um so I'm going to put my hand on my heart and say I was pretty disappointed at least two of those times where we'd get into those sessions and whoever was teaching us would open up the book of Ruth and say, let's look at her character today. And I'd go, oh. We can see from that story that the character of Naomi is not so happy. Lots of negative things happen to her and the way that she responds, she's fairly bitter. So was not inspired at all by the character of Naomi. And then with Ruth, the bit that people tend to focus on, like these key verses, actually did not inspire me at all. So this is how I, I heard Ruth's reaction to her mother-in-law when she says, no, you go back to your people, it's okay. I read it like this. Ruth replied, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. Just I'm going to come with you wherever you end up. That's where I'm going to end up. Wherever you go, I'll go. Whoever you worship, I'll worship. If you die, then I'll die there as well. And I used to like hear that and think, come on, Ruth. That's not very inspirational. This story is happening in the same time chronologically as the book of Judges, which is just before it in the Bible. In the book of Judges, you've got people being called by God. You've got angelic visitation. You've got people uh, learning that they are mighty warriors and they're going and slaying the enemy. You've got miracles that are happening and you're seeing these incredible big powerful things with these people being called to save the entire nation that's what was inspiring me as a teenager not 
as I saw her, very placid, very laid back Ruth. So fast forward a few years, and I, I must have come back to the, the book again, you know, when you do like an overview of the Bible, but I don't think I really stopped and dug into it. And then a few years ago, somebody invited me to speak into a women's conference, and I said, yeah, sure. And they said, we'd love you to do a deep dive in the book of Ruth. So I said, oh, great, that's fantastic. Um, so went away and looked at it, and not only did I find it not so inspi inspiring as a teenager, but by then a whole bunch of other stuff had happened in my life that actually made this book quite painful to come to. Because unfortunately, by the time I was at that stage of life, I read back over the material and thought, ouch, I really identify with Naomi right now. Like, that's not happened before. I've never looked in the Bible and thought, yeah, I can, I can see Naomi's um, motivation and I can actually understand them and I can actually get on board with how she's feeling. So let me tell you why I was, why at that point in my life I could identify with Naomi. So we see from the first few verses of Ruth chapter one that Naomi had grown up in the land of Israel. So she saw herself and her identity and her background was as part of the people of God. So uh, if we go back to the previous books of the Bible, we can see that God called a particular family. He called Abraham and he said, you're going to be blessed and through you, every nation on earth will be blessed. And he um, brought that family to a particular place and then he gave them multiplication. So there were like loads and loads and loads of people born into this family, so much so that they had to divide it into 12 tribes to, to keep track of everybody. We know that they went through slavery for many, many years and then God released them from that through many miracles. But then they spent decades in the desert as well. And eventually they came into the promised land, which is where Naomi and her family will have grown up. We know that God gave them the gift of the law, that God said, through you, all the other nations on the earth will be blessed because you will be like a beacon. So if you uphold the law that I've given you, if you live my way, when people look at you, Israelites, they will see me. If people want to find the God of the universe, they know where to look because you're here in the promised land and you're living the kind of life which is representing who I am. Not only that, but these tribes, this lineage means that as each um, person is born and then they get married, which was the goal, and then you have children, they become part of this inheritance as well. And it's very important, like what your name is, what tribe you belong to. There was this big picture that Naomi had grown up with, but it didn't end up looking like the plan A that she was expecting, because we can see at the beginning, she doesn't, she doesn't stay in Israel. She ends up moving out to Moab because there's a famine. So already circumstances been, had been less than perfect. And when she's out there in Moab, we then hear that her husband passes away. And in those days and in that culture, your husband wasn't just your partner. It wasn't just the person that you loved. He was also your protection. He was your provider. He was the one that made sure that everything in the household ran smoothly and that you had everything that you needed. He was also your name. Like people knew who you were according to the name of your husband. There was so much about that, that kind of covering and that relationship that Naomi then lost. But she did have two sons. And that was important because, again, they carried on the name and they could provide and all that kind of thing. So I imagine for Naomi, her entire hope was in those two sons, especially when they got married. And then there was the expectation that they were going to have children and that was going to carry on the family line. 
Now, two sons for Naomi was, was quite good. It wasn't like the jackpot, but sons were the goal. And, um, and I can tell you that through my own personal experience that the culture over here can be slightly different. I don't know if you've noticed this in kind of Western, uh, kind of British culture, but um, lots of sons is not the goal. If you can have one, one son, one daughter, you've nailed it. Like people go, oh, that's brilliant. Oh, one of each. Oh, isn't that great? Like there's some kind of like, you know, blueprint out there for your family that everybody wants. If you have no children, it's when are you going to have children? If you have one, it's when are you going to have the next one? If you have two and they're the same gender, it's like, oh, well done. Okay. You're allowed to try for another one if that happens. This is the unwritten rule. If you have one of each, boom, fantastic, brilliant. Why would you consider having any more? If you then go on to have more, people are like, oh, congratulations is this is this good are are you happy and if you have more than that it's like wow and the reason that I know this is because I had four sons in a row okay thank you thank you See, so in lots of cultures around the world, it's like, wow, she's a queen. Look at her. She is really blessed to have four sons. But in this kind of like Western, Northern British culture, it's like, ooh, four sons. Were you trying for a girl? (laughs) What other reason would there be? And we used to say, no, we wanted four children and we're very happy. Thank you very much. And then we got a little bit greedy and we did go again and we did have a girl as well. So we had five children. This is what I mean by we definitely saw the worst in each other in those early parenting days because, yeah, it's, it's it's not easy, but it's definitely worth it. So, like Naomi, at some point in my life, I had what was considered to be blessed and life was good. And if I could have written a story of my life in my 20s through to the age of 30, which is when I had my fifth child... You would look and you'd say, amazing, there's someone, she's followed God, she got married, she had children, she went to Bible college. We left the hometown that we'd grown up in and we moved up to another one further north and we started a church there and we were leading that church because we wanted to impact the local community. Life was good. Not perfect, not easy, not always straightforward, but it was good. So how is it that I can identify so much with Naomi's story? Well, that is because um, a couple of, well, very shortly after having five children, one of those children, unfortunately, began to get very ill. And we had, we went through a couple of years as a family where we lived in and out of hospital, where we had to um, access all the medical help that we could from various areas around the country for our little boy. And uh, we were prayed for, we, we held on for that miracle. We absolutely believed that we were going to see the situation turn around. But unfortunately, this illness that was all throughout his body and in his brain, um, it just kept affecting him more and more. He was deteriorating more and more. And when our son was eight and a half years old, he passed away. He went to be with Jesus at the age of eight and a half, and that was in 2012. I don't know, I can't identify fully with Naomi to lose all her children, but I do know the pain of what that's like, that hope for the future, the investment that you've put in somebody's life from the very moment that they came into being, and to have to see the the unfulfillment of those hopes and dreams, and then to go on for the rest of your life, knowing that you're not able to have that child with you is very, very difficult. 
I can also identify with Naomi's story because shortly after we lost our son, my husband ended up in hospital and he had various symptoms and he got a diagnosis of cancer. And unfortunately, that cancer passed really, really quickly through him. It was a, a very aggressive form of cancer. So again, we had so much treatment. We had so much medical help. We had a huge amount of prayer. But two years after losing my son, my husband passed away. And so I found myself, like Naomi, in a place that was further away from where I'd started in a place that we'd moved to with a vision of this is the life that we want to build. We had this dream. We weren't just husband and wife. We were co-pastors. We were parents of multiple children. We were best friends. We saw ourselves in this partnership that was going to be really, really effective and was going to help all these people find God. And I find myself as a single parent um, looking around thinking, I'm not quite sure, do I stay carry on doing what we were doing before? Do I go back? What do I do? My health was struggling. I got a diagnosis after a couple of years of chronic fatigue because there'd been a buildup of five years of, you know, living in this kind of emergency situations. And eventually I made the decision, I'm going to move from the town that we're in, where we had all these ideas of what our future was going to look like, to go back to Preston, which is where I'd, I'd grown up, and to see what God was going to do there. And the thing is about moving back somewhere is something in your brain tells you that you're moving backwards, you know, that it's kind of moving, instead of moving forward, you're going backwards, which is not always true. Very often that's exactly where you're supposed to go, particularly in, in the story of Naomi. But that sense that Naomi has of turning back up in that place and saying, hi, this is me, but I am not the person that I was when I left this place. She came back a very different person than the person that had gone so I looked at her story and thought, wow, I get it now. I get why Naomi talks about herself that way. I get why she talks about having this life that feels full and then reaching a place where you actually feel empty. The thing is, she wasn't empty, was she? She'd lost things that were very, very precious to her, but she still had this daughter-in-law that she came back with. So that same phrase that Ruth used when talking to her mother-in-law, this phrase that she uses about wherever you go, I'm going to go, I looked at that differently as well. Because here's the question that started to be in my mind at that point was I thought, what was it about Naomi that made Ruth react in that way? She was given a get out, like, you just go. I've got nothing left. I'm going to go. If, if Naomi was genuinely a miserable person, like it sounds like she is here, bitter, miserable, can't see a future, if she'd have been like that for the entire 10 years that Ruth had known her, I think Ruth would have been out of there like a shot, like, thank goodness I can get away from this situation. She would have felt like she would be released of that obligation. She wouldn't have done it out of duty. She wouldn't have done it out of desperation. She had another option. We can see here she could have gone back. But there must have been something that she'd already seen in Naomi that by the time Naomi hit this rock bottom, Ruth was able to look her in the eye and say, no, I want what you've got. I have heard you talk about this land that you are going to. I've heard you talk about the stories of how God got you there. I've heard about the kind of community, the kind of people 
that you belong to. I've heard about this God, this God that you, you know, for 10 years, I've heard you talk about the stories and the miracles and the, the blessings that he's put on. And all of this, I can contrast it to my own gods, my own land, my own upbringing. And I'm saying, I want what you've got. And she clung hold of her mother-in-law and said, let's go back and do this together. What a woman Naomi must have been in order for Ruth to react that way. Yes, we're meeting her at her lowest point. We're meeting her at the point where she is trying to say, I failed. I tried to come up with as many solutions as I possibly could, but now I can't. Now I'm actually going to shut the door. I'm going to shut the door and say there's nothing in my future. And don't we do that sometimes? We look and we say, this was all the stuff that should have happened in my life. And now because it's not happened, I can't possibly see how I can be a solution anymore. Like the only thing that Naomi could potentially come up with, any kind of solution, was this really far-fetched, you know, well, even if I did find a husband and even if God did produce a miracle and I was somehow able to, produce, to have children again, would you wait around for those children to, to be adults so that you could marry them? That was the only, she was, it was so embedded in her head that she had to be that person, that that was her role in life, that she missed the idea that she could be used by God in any other way. But Ruth had journeyed with her already so far that she knew that there was more to it than that. And Ruth said, no, let's go. Let's do this. I want to see what that looks like. So they come back to Israel and Naomi shows up and she says, um, I don't even want you to call me Naomi anymore. And the name Naomi means pleasant. And I can tell you that because my little sister is called Naomi. And whenever she was little and she used to lose her temper or do something that wasn't so great, I used to say to her, come on, Naomi means pleasant, which I'm sure she appreciated. Um, but Mara, that means bitter. So she said, "This, you know, you all have to see me differently now. But, you know, as the story goes on, that's not what we see. Yes, Naomi is sad. Naomi grieves. Naomi gathers the women around her to share her grief. So she's not alone. But we get to chapter two and chapter three. And what we see about Naomi is that she is still that fiercely Bible-believing or sort of law-believing woman that is still depending on God. She's actually still trusting God because she begins to advise her daughter-in-law. She says, okay, I know where we're going to be able to collect barley and wheat because it says in the Bible that this, you know, if you don't have anything, this is where you go and this is what you do. So Ruth was able to go and do that and provide. And then Ruth gets the uh, attention of the guy that owns the fields and Naomi starts to say, oh, do you know what, Ruth, if you do this, this and this, then that's kind of, that's biblical and that's good as well. And that might increase your connection to this guy. And eventually it gets to the point where the, the owner of the field, Boaz, looks at Ruth and says, there's a godly woman. There's a woman that I would love to have in my life. A Ruth from Moab was not brought up knowing the God of Israel. So how come she's a godly woman now? Because she's lived so much of her life with Naomi, who's pointed her to God. Because despite what she said about herself, she's still faithful. She's still plodding. She's still making God the center of her life. And we see this beautiful picture as it goes through of Ruth and Boaz coming together. And Boaz is beautifully open-handed with the situation. And he says, you know, there's somebody else out there who actually has a, a bigger um, kind of duty to Ruth. And maybe he should have the, the first opportunity if she's going to remarry. And the other guy goes, no, 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 it's okay. I don't want to take that on. And so Boaz steps in the gap and he says, I'm going to ask for Ruth's hand in marriage. But I'm not just going to do that. I'm going to step into the, um, all the stuff, all the 
inheritance that should have belonged to Naomi's branch of the family through her husband. And I am going to take that on board as well and bring it back into the fold. So it says in Ruth 4 um, that he, he steps in the, in the gap. He becomes the guardian redeemer, which is a beautiful phrase. And in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it says, uh, Today you are witnesses. I have brought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. And I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. This door that Naomi thought was closed, because she believes in God and because she does what she knows is right for God, because she still holds to the truth of the Bible and uses that to guide her life, because she begins to invest in someone else's future, even though she believes that her future is closed, we see this beautiful picture of Boaz who comes in and he says, all this stuff that you thought that you'd lost, I'm going to bring some of it back to you. You still have the name, you still have the property, you still have that lineage that's right there. And then along in the picture, Boaz and Ruth, then they get married and she gives birth to a son. And listen to what the women of the town speak over Naomi when this son is born to Ruth. It says, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May this child become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Naomi, who couldn't imagine an alternative future, has this spoken over her. Her daughter-in-law, a female, a foreigner, a widow, became better to her than seven sons. Isn't God good? And we just think, well, how on earth can you turn this around, God? Plan A is destroyed. What on earth are you going to do next? And God says, just you wait and see. Just keep plodding. Just keep turning up. Just keep following my word. Keep listening to me. Keep doing what you know is the right thing to do. And at that point, this kinsman redeemer steps in and something beautiful happens. And it's incredible foreshadowing. It's showing us now, look out for this kinsman redeemer. Someone who comes and stands in our place. Someone who is alongside us, representing us as our kinsman, but he's also our redeemer. And we know later on that that is also showing what Jesus is going to do. That Jesus is going to come and he's going to step in our place. That whatever we have walked through, the difficulties, the suffering, the disappointments, the hardships, that Jesus has already walked through that with us as our kinsmen, and that he is the redeemer. What does it mean to redeem? It means to take something and to bring worth back to it, to bring something back to wholeness, to make something valuable again. And that's exactly what Jesus does for all of us. And I just want us to focus on that right now. We're going to, the band are going to come up. We're going to go back into a time of worship because I think it's so important for the Holy Spirit to speak to our own lives about this. We've seen this beautiful picture just earlier in the the service this morning of people making a covenant, of people making agreement, as Nick explained, to become members of this church. And, you know, covenant is such a, a, a powerful term. The Bible speaks to us about stepping alongside hand in hand with God and saying, yes, I'm all in. 
But what we can often do is we can make covenants ourselves that are outside of God's plans and God's purposes. Sometimes we can make vows and make declarations over our lives that God never intended us to declare. Naomi calls herself Mara. She says, this is my new identity. This is who I am yet. The Bible never calls her that. It says this is what she said that she was going to call herself. But for the rest of the story, she's still known as Naomi. Why? Because God didn't speak that name over her. If God changes somebody's name in the Bible, they continue to use that new name. That's how we see them. Their identity is new because God gave it to them. But how often do we speak things over ourselves? I'm never going to go back and do that again. I'm never going to trust again. I'm never going to allow myself to be opened up to that again. I've done, I'm useless, I'm worthless. The mistakes that I've made are too big. God can't use me now. We speak this over ourselves as if it's like a covenant or a vow and God's saying, I never said that. There is still future. I've not shut the door. I've not said that it's impossible for you to to bless or for you to help. Yes, your story might look different now. Some things, once they're gone, they're always gone. And death is one of those things, isn't it? There are some chapters that you cannot reopen, you cannot revisit, you cannot go back to. But that doesn't mean that the door is shut on your future. It doesn't mean that the thing that God put on your heart to see in other people is not going to be fulfilled. It's just going to do it a different way than the way that you expected it. So now when I look at the story of Naomi and Ruth, I don't think, oh, you know what, they didn't get an angelic visitation. They didn't win a battle. They didn't even see like an amazing, sort of an obvious miracle in here. They were just two women, two disappointed women who stayed faithful to God. But you know, none of the judges, none of those big personalities that kind of came along and rose up and burned brightly for a short amount of time and then disappeared again. None of them are in the same line as Naomi and Ruth are. Because that baby that's born to Ruth, which is actually named in the Bible as Naomi's son, his name was Obed. Obed went on to have a son called Jesse. Jesse went on to have eight sons. And the youngest of those sons was David, who became the greatest king that Israel had ever seen. Not only that, but we know that David is part of the lineage, the heritage of the Messiah, Jesus. Traced all the way back to these two faithful, God-fearing women. So I'm just going to pray for us right now. Father God, I thank you that you have written a story that is more intricate, more incredible, more powerful than the one that we can write for ourselves. And God, forgive us where we've been so busy looking for the big things, the dramatic things, the things that we've already decided are going to contribute towards our worth and our value. God, help us to let go of the way that we think things ought to be and instead to look to you. God, we know that we are allowed to grieve for what has been lost. We know that we are allowed to retreat into the safety of your arms and say, God, this hurts and I need to deal with this because it's swept the rug out from underneath me. It's taken my breath away. I cannot see a way forward. But God, I thank you that you provide us with a place and a future that is never lost. And Father, I just want to, as we read out these words right now from Ephesians, I actually talk about this bigger picture. God, I pray that you would impress them on our hearts. 
Holy Spirit, speak to us right now as we read your words. From Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. God, I thank you that our lives are not about our success story. They're about giving glory to you. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Forgiveness of sins. In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. God, we praise you that in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will not just the good stuff not just the successful stuff not just the stuff that we would see as beneficial to us and other people but all things according to the purpose of your will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory and we were included in Christ when we heard the message of truth the gospel of our salvation when we believed we were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Jesus, we thank you for the redemption that you bought for us. We thank you that you lived the life that we should have lived and you died the death that we should have died so that we can find redemption in every area of our lives so that God the Father can bring beauty out of ashes, that he can bring joy where there was mourning, that he can bring dancing where there was grief. God, we thank you that there is no story beyond your hand, beyond your redemptive power, that you cannot bring something beautiful and purposeful out of. And Holy Spirit, we ask this morning that wherever we have shut the door, wherever we have labeled things over ourselves or other people, that you would bring that to our hearts and minds now. Just convict us of that. Just ever so gently, just bring it to our minds and say, this thing you thought was done is not done because God is the one that declares this over your life. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the seal and the promise, that you are the one at work in us, no matter where we're up to, no matter what we've done, no matter how our stories looked so far, that it is you that gives us the strength and the purpose and the victory to carry through. So Father God, we give you our stories this morning because of what Jesus has done and in Jesus' name. And we ask that you would do something incredible with every area of our life. Take us into the future and may other people be blessed as a result of the way that you have worked through us. In your name, Jesus. Amen.